listen, same vision is for equal rights and justice for the people, them. What's happening to this beautiful world that we're living in? World citizen, lift up your voice. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the People Powered Planet Podcast, where each week we have amazing solutionaries giving us an insight into how to begin to solve some of the immense problems we're facing in our planet. Now, it's so easy to get overwhelmed with uh, more and more disastrous articles about where our planet's headed. And, and every time you think you understand how bad it is, you find something that shows it's even worse and even deeper and even more troublesome. And we can get overwhelmed and we can drown in that kind of ocean of darkness. And at the same time, when we start looking around, we see incredible number of people working to change the planet, to improve things, to fix things, to love each other, to help each other, to reach out to each other. And at the same time, there's an ocean of light. And we feel that the power of that ocean of light needs to be liberated to help take us away from the darkness toward a survivable and beautiful future. So we're glad to have with us today a, a very, very special guest, uh, an old friend, uh, David Swanson, who heads World Beyond War. Now, think about that a minute, World Beyond War. I mean, right in there is an incredible affirmation that it is actually possible. Many people just think war is the natural way things are. There's always gonna be wars, but actually there really is a world beyond war or there's no world. President Kennedy said that mankind, he said, humans must abolish the weapons of war or the weapons of war will abolish. He said, mankind today, he would say humankind. And that's true. This is the key crucial issue of all. Every other issue won't matter if we don't have a planet to play it out on. So we're very glad to have David here. And I want to start with a little, uh, to start David off with a little personal note. You were reading some stories to your child. Tell us about that. Uh, well, thank you uh, for having me, Arthur, and for all the wonderful work you're doing. And uh, you were asking me why I had written a, a, a sort of a, a, a fake uh, Harry Potter story. Uh, and the reason was, you know, that I thought it was relevant in a number of ways. And this COP26 event is happening in Scotland, but also because I had just read all the Harry Potter books to my to my son, I, I have two boys, 15 and seven. And so I'm talking about the seven-year-old here. So for a seven-year-old, uh, did you talk to him at all about what the parallels were and how the Harry Potter story related to the world? Do, do you deal with that with a seven-year-old? Oh, we talk about every little bit of everything we read and see and, uh, and about what's real and not real and what's made up and what's presented as inevitable uh, it, it, that isn't including uh, the you know sort of built-in ideas of division and animosity and violence that you find even in books as wonderful as the Harry Potter books. So that's very that's very fascinating because in my own life uh, uh, my parents also brought me up dealing with these crucial world issues from an early age, from, from, from age uh, four on, when I said, why don't they melt down all the guns and turn them into doorknobs? <laughs> and since then, I've been working on how do we open the doors to peace. So you and I are both on a long, long-term quest, and your kids are going to help really change the world, too. I'm, I'm glad you're inspiring them. So what is the story? Uh, I understand that there's a huge, uh, almost like a secret. Here it is. There's a major, major cause of the environmental destruction of our planet. 
that's hardly being talked about anywhere. It's it's not in the studies, not in the documents, it's not in the uh, in, in in what they're talking about at COP. What is the big missing invisible ingredient? Yeah, well, and, and as you know, Arthur, I've got a PowerPoint we can go through if you want, but uh, one of the things missing uh, from all of these climate meetings and discussions is complete inclusion of militaries. Militaries have essentially been given a waiver, despite being one of the major ways uh, in which governments, countries destroy the climate, uh, not to mention the rest of the environment and other uh, disastrous consequences. Uh, in, now, in many countries, there's no military, virtually no military, a military that's so small, it doesn't register in terms of, of climate destruction. Uh, but in many others, uh, it is the top or a major uh, contributor to their destruction of the climate. And that in the United States, the US military's petroleum consumption, climate destruction is more than the entire climate destruction, greenhouse gas emission uh, by most countries on, on the planet. Uh, three quarters of the countries, if you took them and ranked them against just the US military, they aren't as bad. So it's, it's a major contributor to how we destroy the climate, but it's just left out of the climate agreements and that's not even mentioned. It's, it's just sort of not noticed. You're not supposed to talk about it. Uh, and of course, virtually nobody knows about it. Wow, so, so I understand that you have now brought together an incredible coalition uh, with over 500 major important organizations with 25,000 people who are saying, wake up. Uh, there is a huge problem here and there's a solution. Uh, maybe tell us about that as a lead in to, to showing us a few slides about it. Yeah, I put a link in the chat to a website, cop26.info. And if you go to cop26.info, you will see a petition. And I've updated just uh, today the list of organizations that's about 500 uh, posted there right on the front of that, of that website. Uh, and then there's a count in the corner of how many individuals have signed that uh, I hope will soon pass 25,000. Uh, and this is a petition to the participants in the COP26 conference, telling them a little bit about the history of the issue and the simple demand to include militaries, to stop excluding militaries from climate agreements uh, and, to, and to require universally of all governments that they include and report on and report accurately on militaries and that the military's climate destruction be credited to the government of that military, not to the so-called host or otherwise known as occupied country where the United States has a military base. Uh, so, you know, there's a, a little bit of detail there, but it's basically stop leaving the militaries out. Mm. Well, why don't you show us a, a little bit of the, show us some of your slide presentation about that. Uh, because I think this is a critical issue that the whole world is facing right now, and it's coming up very shortly. It's an important time for people to jump aboard and, uh, uh, and join in this effort. So go ahead. 
Uh, okay, I will share screen. Tell me if it's working okay. And Arthur, feel free to jump in or to cut me off. Um, and uh, this is a slide uh, making very briefly the point that militaries, even if they're more present and more in our face in a lot of ways and paid celebrations at sporting events and special parking places and get on the airplanes first and so on, they're also just glaringly left out of things where you'd think they'd have to be, uh, including discussions of budgets and spending bills. And, and one of those places they're left out is climate agreements. Um, and so this again is that link and it includes not if you go there, not just the petition, but links to all kinds of upcoming events, both real world in Scotland uh, and elsewhere and online uh, webinars and events that people can take part in. Um, this is a little bit about war and the environment. Uh, if you go to worldbeyondwar.org slash environment, you find all sorts of information and resources and reports and articles. Uh, and climate is just a part of it. Uh, and what the militaries do separate from wars is just a part of it. Uh, but what militaries do to their own countries uh, for whose benefit they supposedly exist and fight endless wars thousands of miles away uh, is, is just devastating. The US military uh, is you know, responsible for most of the major environmental disaster sites around the United States, never mind the places where it wages wars. Uh, so the, the climate is just one piece of that. Um, but looking at the climate, uh, you're talking about, uh, again, destruction of the climate by the U.S. military more than each of three quarters of the world's countries in their entirety. Um, the, uh, the, the majority of the fuel that the, that the U.S. Army burns, uh, it burns in transporting other fuel to its wars. Uh, but the biggest chunk of military climate destruction comes from the airplanes, including the airplanes that don't work with the broken computers and that don't uh, evade radar and that tend to crash and blow up and that uh, the Congress funds more of them than the military even wants and so forth. It's, you know, follow the money. Uh, <laughs> there's no concern for the environment. The, the you know, F-35s that will probably never be used but are doing brain damage to children who live near U.S. airports. Uh, this is this is where the the climate destruction really happens, and and with the, the you know the jet fuel up in the atmosphere, there's further exacerbation of of climate destruction beyond simply measuring the amount of of fuel emitted. Um, and then a big chunk comes from bases uh, in the U.S. and around the world, uh, which have other disastrous consequences and should clearly be shut down. Um, this is a, a graph that I got from a, a, a researcher uh, who knows more about this issue than I do, uh, named Stuart Parkinson, uh, who's in the U.K. and focused on the U.K., but he, he occasionally throws in a comparison to the US, which makes everything he's dealing with in the UK look rather small. Um, 
this is a, a resources database uh, that we just created at worldbeyondwar.org slash resources, where you can pick a topic at the top middle, such as environment, and then you get, in this case, a hundred and some uh, resources. And if you click at the top left and choose a type, meaning articles, reports, videos, comic books, movies, uh, graphics, infographics, etc., you can find the resources just of that type. Um, worth noting that another major uh, way in which the US military in particular devastates the environment and in particular poisons water around military installations uh, and something that's left out blatantly from even good Hollywood movies about this topic, uh, the military uh, is left out, um, is these forever chemicals that are used but don't need to be used uh, to put out fires uh, that the military trains in putting out fires and poisons the water. And then, of course, if the base is in somebody else's country, too bad for them. You have, again, the lack of reporting, the lack of accountability, just the lawless, above the law conduct of these military bases. Um, this I threw in as just a fun fact and great intersectionality crossing issues uh, that, that global warming is uh, actually blowing up uh, piles of, of weapons around the world. Um, here's the, a, a slide mentioning that story we were talking about, Arthur, which people can just uh, do a normal web search and find, or they can go to that link at the bottom there, bit.ly bit slash COP26 Potter. Um, it's, it's worth noting that in the United States, to the extent that anybody has heard the words military and climate in the same sentence, they mostly have heard that the military admits there's a problem with the climate and, you know, full stop, end of story, that's enough to just die of, of satisfaction and admiration. Uh, <laughs> some of them have even heard that the military wants to address the problem and solve it, you know, because, you know, there's going to be million dollar bullets for shooting at rising tides or something. But, but the if you read all the reports from the military and NATO, uh, what they want to do to address the problem has virtually nothing to do with decreasing their own contribution to the problem. Uh, it has a great deal to do with telling people to adapt to the problem, uh, which we ob obviously have to do. But if, if that's all we do, we will soon reach a point where we cannot adapt. Uh, and also has a great deal to do with exploiting the, the melting of the ice to, to gain more territories and more access to more fossil fuels for further destruction, uh, and a great deal to do with blaming the victims, with militarizing borders, with using uh, war as, uh, as a weapon against people uh, suffering because of the climate destruction that's been contributed to by war. Um, and then, of course, there's the other apocalyptic problem that nobody mentions precisely because it wouldn't exist without militarism. Uh, and that is, of course, the nuclear one uh, that has become ever a greater risk, uh, just as the, the climate uh, change has. Um, but 
people to the extent that people talk about the first one uh you know nobody thinks it's enough but it's huge compared to how much anybody talks about that other one um so i'll I'll just speed through the rest of these slides, but you can see that they compare the, the spending level and even the enormous gargantuan unprecedented proposed spending levels. That's what we're talking about here in, in terms of climate aid compared to economic aid and so-called military aid, meaning weapons and training to prop up uh, horrible governments. Um, this is, uh, you know, U.S. spending on climate, on fossil fuel subsidies, and on militarism, uh, and you could throw in here uh, the uh, the biggest spending bills in the history of the universe, the Build Back Better and infrastructure extravaganza, outrageous spending. You know, which even at where they were last week is a, is a little fraction of military spending. Um, I, I if people want to hear my discussion of uh, of all the unstated loopholes and and evasions in the goals that have been announced for the climate by the White House, I can I can go into it. Um, and these are a few things you can do. You can check out the events and petition at cop26.info. All the resources at worldbeyondwar.org/environment. You can promote a demilitarized Green New Deal, and you can build local alliances between peace and environmental groups because the big global environmental groups will not touch peace to save their lives, but the local chapters are more than happy to. Um, and the last thing I, I've got in here is a, a kind of a local campaign that World Beyond War do has done in various localities with uh, great success compared to some of our other demands and, and projects that are very hard to win at in the short term. And, and that is getting, you can get your local government to take public dollars out of both fossil fuel companies and weapons companies. And you can educate people about what the two have in common through that process. Wow, excellent. Very important slides and very important uh, information. I'm particularly interested in what you've shown as what's working, which is to say, uh, beginning to work on the divestment side of it. Um, and, I've, and I'd also like to say, uh, what, one thing that interests me about that is it's kind of uh, one of the things that Gary Davis said in our movie, The World is My Country, is that uh, we need to stop banging our heads against the wall, trying to convince these dinosaurs, these nation state systems, or in a, these nation states in a, a dysfunctional system to try to reform themselves. They're not gonna do it, that we the people have to just start doing it. And we the people do control our dollars. We do control our spending. Uh, and I'm, I'm very interested in exploring with you how we can do more uh, kind of people powered enforcement of, for example, the, the, the ban on nuclear weapons, uh, which says no one's supposed to aid or facilitate or in any way help the production of nuclear weapons. How can we, with our dollars, both through divestment and envision ways through our, our purchases and so on, uh, begin to actually, in a, in, a, in, a, in a consistent way, use that as a way of beginning to enforce world law against some of these uh, travesties? Well, many, many individuals and institutions and governments, local uh, governments, even national governments have taken their money out of 
fossil fuel companies, other environmental destroyers, and out of weapons companies, and even more out of nuclear weapons companies, and, and even more out of Israeli uh, companies uh, than out of weapons companies uh, in their entirety, much less U.S. companies in the way that people divest from Israeli companies. I can't see why one merits it and not the other. Um, and, and so this is a campaign that you can can you know immediately if you are an individual who have money invested in anything uh you know go to worldbeyondwar.org slash divest and look at how you can individually divest that money um but if you can work with us to organize a small group of people to pressure an institution or a government to divest you can make it a real organizing and educational campaign and in the process, achieve the, those ends of getting that money out uh, and the additional sort of less solid uh, end of helping a little bit to stigmatize war profiteering and weapons and, and environmental destruction profiteering. Um, I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a very useful campaign to take on in a number of ways. Well, I think that's such a, a hopeful approach. And we have, have had several speakers along that lines. For example, uh, we had uh, the AFSC's economic, uh, American Friends Service Committee's economic activism project, where they have a database you can go to where you uh, can see where your pension fund uh, is involved in, 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 in military and in the Israeli occupation and things of that sort. Uh, and, you, and this has been very effective. I noticed in the chat, uh, that uh, we have a, a very interesting note there from Richard, uh, one of our attendants here, who said that the uh, Rotary International has now divested from war and, and ecologically disastrous companies. And maybe when, when we get to the question period, he can tell us more about that. But this is 1.2 million members. Is that a good example of the kind of ways that a small group can push a large group to have a major impact? Well, I, I think I was aware that Richard was working on that. Uh, it sounds like there may have been some big recent success that I hadn't heard about yet. So I look forward as much as you do <laughs> or more to hearing from Richard. But, uh, you know, Rotary is one of these organizations uh, that's been for peace for, you know, since back when it was popular in the early part of the 20th century to be for peace uh, and stayed more for peace uh, than a lot of organizations from back then that have completely abandoned the project. So there are all kinds of efforts within Rotary to advocate for peace, meaning not just you know happiness and flowers in your backyard, but actually the absence of war kind of peace. Uh, and World Beyond War and Rotary together have been working uh, and are working right now on an online course that develops into real world activist projects. Uh, and uh, we've been working with Rotary on, on numerous other uh, ways of approaching this problem. So, you know, Rotary has been, ha has been a very uh, beneficial organization for, you know, since long before I was around uh, and we need more like it. Well, Shekhar Mehta, the uh, president of Rotary International, uh, was one of our podcast guests and recently spoke with the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War on Preventing Nuclear War. And we included a clip from him 
and from other leading uh, Rotarians who are uh, working to get a, there's a uh, resolution that they're trying to pass that will actually uh, put Rotary on the map as a supporting the nuclear ban treaty. Uh, and the little video we created to help them with that is called Rush. Rotarians unite to uh, save humanity. The world is my slash uh, Rotary. And if you go there, you can see that, that, that very compelling video with uh, uh, powerful speakers like Ira Heflin talking about how uh, even, you know, we have a, a very moving story of Hiroshima and then realizing how many times that's multiplied and how even, even if a, a, a little nuclear war between Israel and, pa I mean, excuse me, between Pakistan and India, for example, crazy in the land of, of Gandhi that we would have a place that might be the trigger for a nuclear war could eliminate uh, life on earth, just as the, the small you know, meteor that created a 10 mile in diameter uh, crater wiped out the dinosaurs could have put so much soot in the atmosphere. Uh, isn't nuclear war the ultimate uh, climate disaster? I guess anything that eliminates life on, on Earth by damaging the climate is the ultimate climate disaster. And I think it can be done with or without nuclear war, but nuclear war is going to do it faster than anything else we've heard of. Uh, and it's not going to take very many nuclear missiles. It's not going to take uh, having the US or Russia or China involved, although it's most likely to include those. Uh, and it's, it's you know, one miss, one nuclear missile uh, can do the damage, the explosive power of half of World War II, uh, and a handful of them uh, is going to create a nuclear winter uh, that is going to kill crops around the globe. Uh, and it's not going to matter too much whether those nuclear missiles were aimed at people you'd been trained and conditioned to hate or aimed at you know, your, your town. Uh, it's not gonna make that much difference because it's going to create a nuclear winter uh, and starve and otherwise kill virtually all life on earth. Um, so we should listen to people like Ira Hefland. And we, um, I, I wanted to mention, I just, somebody just sent me a book about a guy named Prince uh, Tokugawa, if I'm saying that right. Have you heard of him? No. Tell me about this him. Was, uh, I, I think Rotary was started in 1905, and so their 25th anniversary convention, this guy was the, was the keynote speaker, uh, and he was the, the heir to the, to the throne in Japan, uh, but he also was uh, the president of the upper house of the parliament in Japan for 30 years, and the chief diplomat and, and foreign ambassador for many, many years, and the guy who created the Cherry Blossom Tree Festival in Washington, D.C., and, and he really was a force against war for years and years and years. Uh, and when Joseph Grew was amb U.S. ambassador to Japan and, and Tokugawa was, uh, you know, a presence in J Japanese politics, the two of them really held off war. And, and when the Japanese military blew up a US ship in 1937, they really prevented any moves to war. Uh, and a few months after Tokugawa died, uh, to what extent that was the decisive factor, I don't know. Uh, Japan was in bed with 
Germany and Italy and and uh, you know the, the rest is the rest is much better known. It's you know it's these people who were for peace uh, that that we don't know uh, much about. Yeah, well, that, that's true. The peacemakers, uh, even even when a peacemaker is well known, like Martin Luther King, they, they try to sanitize or or Helen Keller uh, or other big peacemakers. They try to sanitize them into something else. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and and Tokugawa had Helen Keller come over and speak in Japan as well. Yeah, she was a powerful voice for peace back then. So, um, well, so um, let's talk more about how. Uh, how we can move forward to actually create a world beyond war. Uh, what Gary Davis uh, said in the, in the movie is that actually it's, it's very simple. He says, humanity's already invented a system that eliminates war, that inside countries with one government, we don't fight wars. He's, what about civil wars? Well, that's two sovereignties. You know, if, 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 we, if we can create uh, a world in which uh, we, uh, we, we have a, a way of democratically governing the planet, uh, then we could actually eliminate war. Uh, it, you know, he said every everywhere in the world it's illegal to murder people, except outside countries. There, you can kill people and you, you get rewarded for it. Uh, and he said all we need is just take the same law that we have already inside countries that you can't murder, apply that to the world, and you know that would be the end of war. I mean, if you can't murder, it would be pretty tough to fight fight wars. Uh, so. Um, what do you think about ideas of how we could create a bottom-up people-powered democracy? That's what Gary was talking about. He said, you know, obviously he said, does world government scare you? Well, sure, it does me if it's the same old forces of power and money controlling our world from behind closed doors. You know, if these, if these empires that are now starting this new Cold War, you know, the, the Chinese, Russian, and American empires got together to try to control the world, that wouldn't necessarily uh, lead to, to freedom, uh, better life on Earth, peace. Uh, we, how can we, what thought have you given to, and I know you've got a whole alternative security system book, but what thought have you given to how we can create a bottom up, uh, uh, a bottom up way that we, the people can enforce world law and can actually create, uh, the kind of future that we'd like to live in. It's incredible to me how we've been trained to accept mass murder as long as it's called war. You've got all these stories in the news just recently where, you know, top military officials and and uh, elected officials are calling the war on Afghanistan a mistake and a loss and so forth. But if, if a mass murder operation is now a mistake, then don't you have to go and pay attention to all the murders uh, if whatever it was that was supposedly justifying them doesn't hold up anymore. But of course not, because it's war. So you have drone murders uh, where people denounce them as murders unless they're part of a war, because then you can't for some mysterious reason. Uh, I, I think, you know, there are a number of ways we can go about moving things forward uh, educationally and, and through activism uh, in the United States. Uh, one is to demand that the United States ratify, sign and ratify and, and join and adhere to all the major human rights treaties and, and laws in the world that it's the only or one of the few holdouts on, uh, that it stop punishing countries for supporting the International Criminal Court, that it join and uphold the International Criminal Court, that it stop sanctioning 
brutally, murderously sanctioning dozens of countries around the world in violation of the Geneva Conventions, that it, that it change its behavior in all of these ways, or alternatively, that it shut the hell up about human rights abuses by anybody else and the need to use war to address them and how bombing is going to make the Chinese nicer to people. Uh, you know, I think those are the two choices for the U.S. But I think around the world, we have to be urging people to demand that their governments, many of which are much more responsive to public pressure than the U.S. government, that they stand up to the US. You know, the, the, the war on Afghanistan saw terrorism generated in countries in exact proportion to how many troops they sent to take part in the war on Afghanistan. And now they wanna sign on for a war on China? I mean, what sort of idiocy is this? So we, we have to demand that countries refuse to be dictated to by the lawless uh, abuser of power in, in Washington, D.C., uh, and, and that there be a movement to use prosecutions under universal jurisdiction, to uphold treaties even with major holdouts, and to democratize the United Nations, uh, and, and to act without it, to act the way it should be acting, to, to generate unarmed civilian peacekeepers whether the United Nations will stand for it or not through organizations like Nonviolent Peace Force because they are so much more effective than the UN's armed so-called peacekeepers. Well, so, so interesting that you mentioned effectiveness because you know I think, I think if we, we were missing, as you said, the big lesson from Afghanistan. If, you know, with 20 years of war from a massively powerful, the most powerful military force in the world, couldn't beat tribesmen in Afghanistan in 20 years, if it couldn't beat uh, you know, you know, people in the jungles of, of Vietnam, if, if the Soviet Union before that couldn't beat these people in Afghanistan, in, in Vietnam, if the, if the Chinese, the French before that, and the Chinese couldn't beat them, is the entire, is the word military power actually an oxymoron? Is there no such thing as military power? Is military power actually military powerlessness that actually creates the opposite? I mean, instead of defending the rights of women, we created an oppressive force that's oppressing women, right? Is it just totally a, a misnomer? It's hard to say totally about anything, but darn near for sure. Um, and, you know, you can look at all the corruption uh, and the fact that the war on Afghanistan was just a raging success uh, in terms of the actual motivations, which were to make lots of money from weapons, uh, it, you know, and you could imagine, uh, you know, reforming the U.S. military so that it focused efficiently and, and accountably on weapons that actually work and strategies that actually have some chance of working and so forth. Uh, but when you look at the, the, the basic idea of occupying Afghanistan, uh, and there was always this demand for success and victory, but there was never a description of what it would look like. Uh, there, was, there was no recognition of the fact that you just don't have anything that resembles a victory 
occupying somebody else's country. It doesn't happen. Uh, you know, the way you get a war that you celebrate as a victory, like the first war on Iraq, the Gulf War, uh, is simply by ending it more quickly than the other wars. If it were, if the Gulf War had been the only war in the history of the world, we would all think of it as the worst thing humanity had ever done. Uh, but it's because it was shorter and less horrible than some of the other wars that we, you know, call it a good war and a victory. So th there really isn't anything to be called a successful war. Uh, and if you look at the statistics, if you look at the studies, if you look at Erica Chenoweth's database, you know, nonviolent campaigns are just far more likely to succeed than violent ones. Uh, and those successes are overwhelmingly far longer lasting. Uh, and so when you try to tell people that it's nonsense, to talk about the need to resort to violence because everything else has been tried, that what you have to resort to is the strongest possible tools, which are nonviolent. Uh, you know, either they're open to learning something, or you know, more often than not, they are convinced you're a, you're an absolute imbecile who has no idea what he's talking about. Well, you know, I think you're so right that we actually have to employ the strong force, which is nonviolence. There's a, a, a fantastic series that was once done on, on PBS uh, uh, about the, uh, the power of nonviolence that had just chapter after chapter of so many cases where it's successful and violence fails. Uh, and yet we have this, you know, this, this hip, we're hypnotized into this false belief that there's such a thing as, as military power. And it's actually a cancer threatening our very survival. Um, so the work you're doing is, is so crucial to begin to, to turn this around. Um, what do you see as the most important lever that people can use right now to begin to make this uh, uh, shift to actually creating a world beyond war? I think that series might have been called A Force More Powerful. A Force More uh, Powerful, that's it, yes. And, and there, there's a book I recommend, uh, I don't know, I, I prefer books to, to movies. There is a book uh, of it as well. Um, I, I don't know uh, the one thing that's uh, going to change the world most quickly. Um, I, I, I hope everyone can join us in World Beyond War and other aligned uh, organizations uh, to work on what they are best at and, and most interested in. Um, but we need education and we need activism uh, and we need to do it locally and globally, not just nationally, uh, because as we've been talking about, the nations are, are standing in the way. Um, and, and this is what we're doing. We're building chapters, we're hiring organizers, we're launching educational efforts, new educational slash activism courses in partnership with groups like Rotary. Uh, we're doing divestment campaigns, we're doing campaigns to close military bases, uh, we're doing educational and activism work around military budgets and militaries in, in climate agreements. Uh, and I think we need all of this. And we sometimes have victories. We sometimes prevent wars. We sometimes prevent weapons deals. We sometimes get legislation passed. And, and we often don't. We often don't have victories, but we do enjoy the solidarity, uh, the friendship the, uh, of the struggle that, uh, that you were talking about at the, at the start of the day here, Arthur. 
Right. Well, I think this is an incredible job you're doing. Uh, tell us how many chapters do you have and how can people get involved in a local chapter of World Beyond War? Uh, we have to get Greta on here or I have to go look oh, okay. at the website. Well, but okay. We have <laughs> dozens of chapters and growing and many times that of affiliates of, of organizations that are working with us but have a different name and identity as well. Uh, and we have people who've signed our peace pledge, our declaration of peace in 192 countries and growing, uh, growing ever more slowly because there aren't very many countries left to find people to sign it from. Uh, and so we're, we're growing, but we're not competing with the weapons industry yet. Um, we, you know, we have to, we have people in, in more countries than the U.S. has troops, but uh, we, but in, in budget terms, uh, you know, there's still a billion dollar marketing campaign for, for wars and recruitment in just the United States every year. Uh, and ours is, you know, virtually non-existent. Well, uh, I think that that's a crucial thing for us to turn over to questions because we all need to get behind and support uh, you. I know you sent out a very moving fundraising letter recently that, you know, you really, it's so crazy that one of the most important effective organizations now is kind of dangling by a, a shoestring while there's so much funding going into the crazy things that are destroying us. But uh, we really need to find ways to support you. So uh, maybe you could make a brief comment about that and then we'll open it to questions. Well, that's very generous of you to say, um, yeah, if people go to worldbeyondwar.org and click on donate or worldbeyondwar.org slash donate, and it has all the info there to donate by check or any other means, um, they can help out. Uh, and if you sign up as a sustainer, as a recurring donor, making a small donation every month automatically, uh, that helps us the most and we can count on it and we'd never have to bug you or ask you for, for money ever again. Um, we, you know, we recently hired more staff. We recently uh, switched from having a fiscal sponsor to being our own 501c3 in terms of legal identity in the United States, and, and we have other legal identities in other countries. Um, and, you know, we, we got into a bit of a bind because there's, in part because the U.S. government is so slow about processing uh, the paperwork for your new 501c3 and you can't really start using it. Um, but we did send out an email saying, look, we're going to run out of money in the next month if you all don't help. And I didn't know what would happen, but we were just overwhelmed. I mean, the, the, the donations and the number and the size of the donations, uh, just you know, many, many times uh, what we'd ever seen before. So it doesn't mean we don't need more. doesn't mean we won't soon go broke again if everybody stops uh, donating, but uh, it, it certainly has helped us get over this bump. And uh, you know, we're, gonna, we're going to at least continue uh, through the end of the year when you can usually count on lots of donations because it's the end of the year. Um, but we don't, but we don't want to just continue. We want to grow a thousand fold. So <laughs> we're always looking for ideas for more funding. Oh, good for you. Well, this, with that, I'm going to turn it over to Melanie to uh, take the question period. Uh, and uh, uh, thank you so much for, uh, for all your incredible work. And uh, Melanie, take it. Yay. Yes. I want to reiterate that um, you're, 
I've always been impressed by the amount of things that your organization accomplishes. And uh, kudos to Greta, kudos to you, kudos to everybody who's volunteering there. This is an amazing organization. And uh, you know, you have the billboards with all the facts about war, uh, you, you're just on and on and on demonstrations, petitions, you're getting the word out, you, you write so much people can support you and your actual your book writing and your incredible author. Oh my gosh. So yes, the best thing, best thing to do is to, to do a reoccurring donation that makes the organization relax. They know something that's coming in. It's it's stable. Um, that's the best way. You know, a little bit about every month is the best way. So um, and continuing that. So yes, we'd like to quickly go to questions. Sorry, um, but thank you again. World beyond war. Yes. Um, thank you, Melanie. Yes. So um, yes, first question, Richard. Yes, we're going to go with to Richard and and talk about. Rotary and that exciting news with Rotary. Richard, go ahead. Thank you very much. And thank you, thank you uh, Melanie, and, and thank you, Arthur, for having David. David, you're one of my mentors and inspiration. And uh, uh, I met you in uh, Ontario, uh, California, at our Rotary Peace Convention, and I've been following you ever since. And as you say, uh, Phil Gittins uh, has the program with uh, uh, what we call RAGS for Peace, uh, Rotary Action Group for Peace. And uh, Helen uh, Peacock has got 100 uh, or uh, 10 Canadians uh, involved in that project that uh, involves 100 students around the world on your program on uh, peace. Uh, just to bring you up to date, uh, several of us have been uh, pressuring uh, Rotary to come up with a social responsible investing uh, policy, or some call it environmental social governance, uh, but they have now come out with both uh, positive uh, policy on investing in companies that support the environment, as well as negative uh, divesting uh, policy of not investing in uh, companies that harm the environment, and also in, to use their words, nuclear explosives. So uh, this has just come out as of June of this year at a board meeting of Rotary. Uh, it affects primarily the Rotary Foundation, uh, the trustees of the Rotary Foundation. That's where Rotary, quote, has all its money. And so that's where it actually takes effect. And so uh, unfortunately, it hasn't got the uh, acknowledgement uh, in Rotary that we would like to see, uh, but uh, that, that has come about, and so we are certainly very happy on that. Uh, so uh, that goes along with your divestment, it goes along with uh, Susie Schneider and uh, Don't Bank on the Bomb. Uh, investment. And so now Rotary has joined that group. We are now starting to work on uh, Bank of America to uh, because Rotary uh, uses Bank of America as its investment agent. And so we're now working on Bank of America to uh, do likewise to do uh, the divestment. So any help that you have or can give us on that would certainly be appreciative. 
uh, a question for you is you sort of uh, started off uh, today talking about COP26 and trying to get the military to be uh, acknowledged as part of a state's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more and what, what chances do you think we have in accomplishing that? I know you have people there uh, at COP26 doing just that. And as you said, you have a number of other organizations that have joined on. So uh, are you optimistic or of course it's going to be an uphill battle? Um, thank you uh, for uh, all of that. Um, and I, I'm not sure how I missed that Rotary divested uh, last summer from, uh, or, or this past summer from uh, from nukes and fossil fuels. I, I wonder, well, Richard, if you- Well, it wasn't very well advertised for sure. I wonder, Richard, if you might be willing to, to write a very short uh, statement about how absolutely thrillingly wonderful it is that Rotary has divested from nuclear weapons. Now, what about the rest of the deadly weapons, question mark? Um, because uh, needless to say, uh, in investing in, in the war weapons that are being used uh, is not any more moral or acceptable than uh, investing in the nuclear weapons. So uh, if well, we- Well, can... actually they, they do have a policy on military in overall. So that uh, I can send you the uh, um, board, minutes, uh, it's uh, Appendix B, and uh, it, it uh, lists all what they will now not invest in and what they will invest in, in general terms. This is so, as uh, of June, and this includes weapons beyond nuclear weapons? Yes, it does. Well, I doubly don't know how the heck I missed that, and I will do everything within my power to find it, but if you can send it to me, that would be wonderful. Um, I think we need to... Uh, uh, we need to praise the heck out of that uh, and encourage others to do likewise. Um, I, 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 I have to uh, disappoint and decline uh, the, the second question as I just have absolutely no use for optimism or pessimism. I think they are absolute drains on our time and energy and distractions and self-indulgences. Um, uh, but I think uh, very clearly when you don't have a single government you know, not Costa Rica, not Iceland, not any of the governments that that report on some of their military uh, greenhouse gas emissions uh, advocating uh, on the issue, proposing that uh, that that it be established as a as a law for the world that militaries no longer be exempted from these agreements. Uh, you know, most uh, betting agencies would not uh, encourage betting heavily on, uh, on you know, the outcome coming out of the conference when not a single attendee is, is you know, even proposing the thing. Um, but what we need to do is advocate as strongly and strategically as we can so that if at all possible, some handful of homo sapiens find out that the topic exists at all. You know, I mean, that's the first step we do. I mean, we do have members of parliaments and European parliament and, uh, uh, you know, members of Scottish parliament uh, and others on our side. And we're going to do events with the biggest VIPs we can put together. Uh, 
but to my knowledge, we don't have a single national government uh, remotely interested uh, in the question. Um, and I think part of that uh, has to be the, the subservience to the US government uh, that is just not going to be happy uh, about any, uh, you know, not, not voluntary vague statements, but any actual law that requires that militaries be included uh, in climate agreements that be adhered to, because that would mean a reduction in, in, in something, probably in militaries. I didn't know that uh, none of the countries like uh, Costa Rica, et cetera, are not uh, advocating this. So, hmm. Well, it, there, there, as we have learned in the past five minutes, there are things in this world that I'm unaware of. So <laughs> it, it's, you know, if there is a country out there advocating it, let's Let's become aware of that, uh, if at all possible. But I'm I'm not at this moment aware of it. Thank you for that question and dialogue. That's perfect. Um, we do want to end quite on right on the dot, so we're going to go quickly to Michael. Michael, if you could be short. How can we uh, introduce you know the massive amount of military emissions in the world, uh, especially the United States and now China being so all these sorties of jet aircraft all over the world into COP26? I think we would need a very big pipe that? and a very big fan uh, if we could even collect all of those emissions to introduce them into, into the meeting rooms of COP26. And uh, I don't think anyone would come out alive if we did. Uh, but to introduce the topic, which I assume is what you meant, into, into COP26, uh, you know, we're doing everything we can to, uh, to get uh, the, the key, uh, you know, big shots from the UK and from Italy and elsewhere that are running the thing uh, to meet with us and to accept the petition. Um, Veterans for Peace has, you know, delivered a identical petition to John Kerry, uh, who's the U.S. climate uh, guy uh, who expressed zero interest in it. Um, oh. it's, it's, it's not, you know, we, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't delve into this fantasy that they haven't heard about the problem and just need to be made aware. <laughs> they know goddamn well what the problem is. The question is, can we bring enough pressure, enough public demand on them to force them to do anything about it? Um, and so, you know, we're going to make the march and this part of the march as big as we can through Glasgow. We're going to do events around the world and, and pressuring national governments in various nations around the world. We're going to do endless webinars. We're going to push in the media. We're going to do this press event on November 4th in Glasgow. We're trying to get coverage of this topic in the biggest media outlets we can. Uh, and we heartily welcome any and all ideas uh, for what would move it forward. Um, but it, you know, it, it, it isn't calling up the the conference and letting them know as if they didn't um, you know they're they are absolutely perfectly well aware and why do they do it why do they exclude militaries because they can because they're getting away with it why do they exclude other things international sh shipping or livestock or anything they exclude whatever they can get away with excluding you know, this is the this is the problem. They're not they're they're not us. They're not trying to do good in the world. So, do you have a quick? Uh, so, do you have an estimate like what percentage of total global emissions would be like all the vehicles and transportation, as opposed to what what amount is military and uh, these other excluded items you talked about, like livestock and agriculture, well, perhaps. 
I, I don't think anyone has a super exact reliable statement of that because part of the problem is the lack of reporting. Uh, but there are people who have estimated, you know, 5%, 10%, several percent anyway, uh, is from militaries. Uh, but, you know, as with climate, as with greenhouse gas emissions in general, you know, it's a handful of countries uh, causing the bulk of the problem. As with weapons sales or, you know, many things in this world, it's, you know, it's a few countries uh, causing most of the problem. Uh, and so, uh, again, the U.S. military greenhouse gas emissions, just what we know of, just what we can, uh, can say for sure exist without counting further destruction that comes through wars or through the repercussions of all the jet fuel being in the atmosphere, et cetera, uh, alone is more than the entire greenhouse gas emissions of any of three quarters of the countries on earth. Um, and so it's, you know, if we're going to be pressuring these other countries to do better, uh, you know, if you're going to be blaming the, <laughs> the victims when for, for decades, you know, the United States has been number one or number two uh, in all of these areas of pollution and destruction um, and, and for decades was far and away number one. Um, you know, we, we have to Sadly, we, you know, we're talking about all militaries We're we're again, I'm against militarism by anybody, but there is a super giant gorilla on steroids in the room. You know? Now let's go to Vince, Vincent, real quick, if you could uh, unmute. Uh, I want to know what's the best way for an individual to get their bank to divest. Who would you talk to in the bank? <laughs> Your teller? <laughs> The, the, if you recall the lyrics of Solidarity Forever, uh, what force on earth is, equal, is weaker than the feeble strength of one? Uh, not many. Uh, uh, and if you're talking about uh, a local bank that exists in only one little location, your, your community uh, credit union in your neighborhood, and you know the guy who runs it or the, the woman who runs it, uh, you know, yeah, maybe you have some shot. But uh, otherwise, I think uh, it makes more sense to to organize uh, a, a major petition and organization and get a few people who can you know own a tiny bit and get into the the meetings of shareholders and put up public and private uh, pressure uh, from various angles um, because uh, uh, again it's they, it's not that they haven't heard what they're investing their money in <laughs> they, they, they study every day what they're investing their money in uh, it's a question of whether uh, they can be encouraged or, or shamed and rewarded uh, with sticks and carrots of, of enormous size uh, to change their ways um, so I don't you know, unless it, you know, unless you've got some special relationship, um, I, I certainly wouldn't discourage you from asking uh, every top official at whatever bank it is. But I wouldn't uh, guarantee success. Do it, Vincent. Do it now. We want to honor David's time. Uh, we have some things that some people would like to speak after, but we want to let David go at exactly 11 in one minute. So David, um, we want to thank you. And Arthur's going to ask you how people can get in touch with you real quick, and then we'll stay on. And David can log off at 11 exactly. Arthur, back to you. 
great, uh, great that you could join us. Uh, I guess the key thing is how, how now can people uh, best be a part of your effort and join what you're doing? Oh, well, I, I love the miraculous tool called email. I, I know we're supposed to be on, on Slack and WhatsApp and Zoom and 18 other things because each one is more convenient than the last. But, uh, you know, I just don't I can't I don't have time for such convenience. If you can email me at davidswanson.org, worldbeyondwar.org and rootsaction.org, um, I'm sure we can be in touch. We are so thrilled. We're so thrilled that we were able to have you on our podcast today. David, because you are really one of the most, uh, you're one of the leaders that is leading our planet toward a safe and secure and positive future. Uh, so it's so valuable to have your important work for the world. Thank you so much. And if you have to run, go. If not, I'll let uh, maybe Kasha say a little bit about being at COP26 with you and uh, maybe uh, can, can generate effort, extra efforts. Uh, Kasha, do you want to talk? And if you have to drop off, David, go ahead and uh, we'll give Kasha the floor a minute. She's a remarkable young woman who's done this incredible uh, film that's having an impact on getting kids mobilized uh, for this crucial issue. Go ahead, uh, Kasha, tell us about COP26 and what you're gonna be doing there. We're about to head out to COP26 in Glasgow for the very first production shoot of my documentary, 1.5 Degrees of Peace. Um, hey. Looking specifically to follow the actions, demonstrations, speeches, planning processes of young people who are both affected by militarism and the climate crisis, but also looking to bring those issues into the conversation and negotiations at COP. So, um, you know, it's not going to be all doom and gloom. Hopefully we'll see some really special bonding moments between incredible young activists, hopefully some successes. I, kn I know that we've been hearing some kind of um, mixed uh, pre-COP you know, uh, statements from governments. So it's really up in the air as to what's gonna happen, but um, to get there, to bring the stories of inspirational young people, we need we need support to get across the pond. <laughs> well, so, that's good. How can people support you to get across the pond? Because you're doing crucial work as a, a wonderful young, young woman who's made an impact. I know Richard's also been a big fan of yours and uh, others, uh, we are. Uh, how can people join in helping you with this crucial effort to bring young people into this crucial, crucial issue of how do we have a planet for you guys to live on? <laughs> exactly. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm kind of losing my voice because it's been such a crazy week here. Um, but the best way that we can ask for support right now is um, we've launched an Indiegogo campaign online. Um, I can put the link below. We are asking for donations of any kind um, to our campaign so that we can cover our production costs. But we know that that's not feasible for everyone. So even spreading the word to three friends or posting it on your social media makes all the difference um, in keeping the momentum up with the campaign. So um, it's really very much appreciated. And thanks so much for having me. I didn't <laughs> expect to be here today, but I'm happy that I could be a part of the conversation. Good. Well, thank you, Kasha. David, uh, that you, there's an extraordinary way people can uh, uh, help world, world Beyond War and uh, get a world passport. And if anyone applies for the world passport or uh, just uh, wants to get world citizen documents from World Service Authority, like this world passport behind me, as I, as I mentioned, we donate 20% of the proceeds to World Beyond War. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. And until next week, this is Arthur Kanigas signing off for the People Powered Planet podcast.
World citizen, lift up your voices. Oh, you know we got something to say. All we need is the same directions, heading in one way. One way.